I haven't been invited to someone else's channel for a long time. Oh wow, you're always the the inviter, never the invite. Yeah, I'm always the. There's an expression for that, but I forgot it. it. Doesn't matter. How you doing? I'm doing good. I'm tired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm always tired. Yeah. All right. So yeah, uh, we're gonna we're gonna solve all the problems of Left Unity, right? That's the basic idea. Uh, yeah. Well, I was I was just thinking that you know Left Unity has been this thing that people have been talking about and discussing since a few years ago. It was the you know 1850s. Um, these two guys, Karl Marx and uh, Proudhon were just having this beef with each other uh, yeah. and just cancelling each other on Twitter and stuff. They were and so I, I just thought we could sit down for like one hour, two hours and just like, just hash it out just get it done with and then we could just call it a day on, on the whole you know, problem with left unity and we could just be like yeah, it's, we solved it. Uh, yeah, I think that, I mean I think it's well within our abilities. We're, you know we're pretty awesome and yeah. We're good. At, we're good problem solvers. I think if so. I do say so myself. So, I'm confident that by the end of this stream, the issue of leftist unity will be completely resolved. I'm putting on my makeup now. Oh wow! Which How is fancy. what I do because because I get real sweaty in the studio, and I don't want y'all to know about it. So don't tell anybody that I'm putting makeup <laughs> on right now. I put on my mask. <laughs> Yeah. Oh wait, it's flipped. Well, that's good because I don't think that COVID's <laughs> contained where you are. Is, is COVID contained in Sweden? Uh, no. Yeah, so you need to wear a mask. But I'm here in Vietnam where it's completely contained, so I'll just bask in the luxury of not having to deal with the pandemic. Oh yeah, I mean, I I was looking at the statistics um, yesterday, and yeah. like Vietnam has the second lowest amount of deaths per capita in the world uh yeah. next only to burundi i think and they had one death yeah yeah i mean they've done an amazing remarkable job uh and i think that sort of ties in with what we're gonna be discussing today because living in a marxist leninist uh oriented country and having my partner comrade luna with luna oi youtube.com slash luna oi um, she, you know, she's a Marxist Leninist herself. So we basically have debate, like, you know, we live together and we spend like all of our waking hours together and we debate and discuss and challenge each other constantly, mm -hmm. uh, you know, cause I'm an anarchist, uh, consider myself an anarcho-communist, but I also, you know, and she has turned me on to dialectical materialism. She's a really excellent teacher of dialectical materialism. Uh, she, uses the curriculum that was developed here in Vietnam, uh, which is a pretty remarkable achievement. They've taken like dozens and dozens of books from Engels and Marx and Lenin and Ho Chi Minh and lots and lots of other people. And they've kind of condensed them down into this curriculum, which Luna is translating into English for the first time. And I used to think dialectical materialism was kind of a waste of time, kind of silly Marxist Leninist, uh, you know, theatrics. But Luna has you know, over time taught me about this stuff and um, convinced me of its utility and convinced me of its uh, uh, efficacy in describing and, and understanding the world. So, um, you know, and I was very, very, in fact, even like living in Vietnam, when I first moved here, I was pretty much convinced that it was like this hellish police state. Um, mm. I moved here before I was even a leftist. So I saw these hammer and sickle flags and everything. And I 
kind of associate. I, I, I they was they were like equally as evil as like a swastika in my mind when I first moved here. Yeah. Um, and it's taken a long time to sort of unlearn that. Really, brainwashing is what it, I would best way to describe it. Um, so it's been quite a journey, you know. And I, and I've had to like, uh, you know, I have plenty of criticisms of Vietnam. Obviously, um, it's not a perfect country. Um, yeah, but they do a lot of that. things really well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, I mean, that's kind of a, I guess for, for folks who aren't familiar with me, that's kind of a little bit of background of my back, uh, of my, I I live in Vietnam. I've been here for almost a decade. Um, but yeah, I'm an anarchist. Uh, I consider myself an intersectionalist anarcho-communist, but I don't, you know, the labels, you know, what does that mean? Does it, cause I still believe in dialectical materialism. I still, uh, think that Marx's analysis of capital was pretty much spot on. I mean, it's been you know, obviously there's some, we talked in the last stream we were in about, you know, Marx yeah. didn't know, didn't get everything hundred percent right. He had, you know, blind spots and obviously he was pretty Eurocentric. We talked about that yeah. uh, before, but I, you know, I think he, he had a, he made a lot of good points. He and Engels and even Lenin. And yeah, so, um, I'm not somebody who just dismisses ideas from other tendencies immediately and I engage with them. And I think it's important that we all try to understand each other at the very least, even if we don't end up agreeing with each other. Um, yeah, I think, I think that's, one of the main things that I've taken away from, I think one of the main things has been the Discord server that I created because we have like 800 people on there now and it's kind of mm -hmm. taken on this like life of its own. It's like not even everyone on that Discord server even like follow me on YouTube, right? It's yeah. just this um, leftist space now kind of, even though it's yeah. still named after me and my, my YouTube channel and that's supposed to be the purpose of it, but like it's more of yeah. just a community of leftists. And I feel bad about my discord server because it's kind of a similar situation, but it's like, I just don't, I'm so behind on all my correspondence mm. and I, I don't check into my discord server nearly as much as I should. And I always feel bad about it. So if you're yeah. came here through my discord server, please know that I do try to at least check out what's going on there from time to time. But, um, yeah, I, I, <laughs> I fail a lot. See, I've, uh, I've solved this issue by just delegating all the duties to moderators. And yeah, I have I a great moderator team. Very, it, yeah, yeah, if you happen to be a moderator on my Discord server, I owe you a massive def debt of gratitude. Um, they do a really, really good job. So yeah. shout out to all the mods out there. Um, now, here's an interesting question, and I, I'm going to critique you. Oh, no. Okay. How, how anarchistic is your Discord server? It's <laughs> – w well, okay, I'll say that it's um, – well, I, I think that okay, this is that's a good question, and um, I I have tried to create a, a anarchist online spaces many many times in many different situations, and um, it's difficult, especially with something like a Discord mm. server, and that's partly a material problem, material condition problem, because Discord doesn't give a lot of great community self management tools. No, you know, like so. I, what I would love would be for there to be like functionality to, for instance, uh, just democratically have people vote for, um, you know, for instance, like maybe banning somebody from the server or kicking somebody from the server. Like the best thing I think would be for us to be able to like vote for that, but there's no real, to design a system like that would re require a lot of like third party tools and it would get like yeah. really complicated because Discord's not designed, Discord is designed in this very hierarchical format, you know, where there's like yeah. the person who builds the server and then there's the moderators. And it's kind of like you're you're really going against the grain to try to make it more anarchistic. Yeah. It's not such a big deal, I think, on my server because my server is just really a place to chill out. Um, 
you know, I do try to put it, I try to like do things democratically um, where like if we're making a big decision, I'll put a poll out and try to do rank choice voting on it and try to get people's feedback before making any big decisions that would affect the whole server. Um, but it's, I don't think the stakes are very high, you know, because it's really just a place to kind of relax by design. It's not really like a, a project, but I do, ha I do work on a variety of leftist projects that are centrally organized around a Discord server. And that does become a big problem with those situations. And we usually have yeah. to end up using third-party things like Lumio or, um, you know, set up like really complicated like Google Sheets and shit for voting or Google Forms. Um, yeah. So I would love to have a better – and not beyond that, it's like there's security problems with Discord and stuff. So it's a, probably a bigger yeah. question than – we could probably do a whole stream on, you know, how to organize better and more leftist-friendly and more anarchistic online spaces. So the that long story cool short screen. is it's not as anarchistic as I would like for it to be. And yeah. I would love for there to be like more Discord bots and programs and shit like that for us to make better, uh, flatly hierarchically designed spaces on Discord. But Discord's just not a great. I don't even know why people use Discord to be honest. I only use it because everyone else does. Yeah, I prefer MIRC, <laughs> and you know I'm kind of old school, but you know it is what it is. Well, I was there, using I, um, I was using Skype up until everyone moved to Discord. We yeah. had like a little a little like leftist YouTuber group on Skype mm -hmm. like back in like 2015 2016 that's where my my original logo came from someone i really wish i could remember who it was but just someone in that Skype group was just like hey i drew a logo based on your username and i used that and it was a blue goat and it had a red star behind it and a finger pointing to it and that's my logo now yeah. it's not the same one but but it's the original design is that one um yeah i mean i i hate I hate, I don't know, I'm just so bad at, like, I, 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 I've been a professional user experience uh, designer in my life, so I've learned a little bit about how UX should work and user interfaces should work and that sort of thing, and there just are no good ones <laughs> on social yeah. media, none of, the, none of the popular programs, and it almost feels like it's kind of like, like, there's so many things that would make my life so much easier, but they're not going to happen because of capitalism. So, like, for <laughs> instance, I really wish, I, I have this app, I have this app that I just downloaded it's called uh, Shift, right? And so what it does is it takes, because my problem is I get overloaded where I'll have, because I have like Discord messages, I have Google Hangouts messages, I have Twitter DMs, I have two email accounts I have to check all the time, et cetera, et cetera. Patreon, you know, all the shit that I got, Facebook, yeah. I got to keep track of all this stuff. And what I would love is for it all just to kind of come into one funnel, into one location or something, you know? So I got this mm -hmm. app Shift and it's like kind of does that, but you still have to go between all these different tabs. And it's like they won't ever integrate. I can't, for instance, integrate Facebook Messenger with Twitter DMs because they want to have these walled gardens. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's like it really cuts down on my productivity because they see each other as competitors. You know, it's so obnoxious. And it's just like how when you put a YouTube video on Facebook or Twitter, they'll like, you know, they like on Facebook, they make it smaller. Nowadays, it's just a still image. You can't even play it within Facebook anymore. They don't have the autoplay anymore. So it's like they do all this stuff to like – screw each other over on between the different platforms, which is just obnoxious and ridiculous. Cause like there's no way that tw Twitter is going to like take over the whole internet and have, you know, like the, it's like, <laughs> yeah, that seems to be their goal. I don't know. It's obnoxious. I hate capitalism. Um, yeah. I would, I would love to know your thoughts on, um, I mean, kind of like, um, GNU slash Linux and like free software and that kind of stuff. Cause that's very, oh, yeah. 
anarchist uh, i mean yeah. it's like anarchist adjacent right yeah from what i understand i don't know if it's every i don't think it's every version of linux but i think most versions of linux actually come with the anarchist faq uh embedded in the huh. software somewhere um i have de I, the only reason i'm not on linux right now is because i am tied to the adobe suite um yeah oh yeah sadly and i yeah and so i i have to use that um it's just like I've been using it for so long. I've tried switching to free stuff. I've tried switching to DaVinci Resolve. And if you're starting out with video editing now, I would say don't get involved with Adobe because they basically they basically get you like it's like the first hits free kind of thing. But then once you're in the yeah. software, once you're locked into that software, it's like all my old projects are Adobe and yeah. they have, you know, you have to be able to get all the different so versions because the backwards compatibility isn't great. Like yeah. After it's good. Premiere. It is good software. Yeah. It is good software. It's like I mean, $500 a month, but it's so useful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's not as bad as it used to be. I used to literally, because yeah. I used to buy these for when I ran my business, and we would have like five editing desks, and every one of them was like over $1,000 just for the software. It was ridiculous. Yeah. Um, but anyway, I don't recommend people. If you can use free software, I definitely recommend you use it. I, I'm just so comfortable with it at this point. I've been using it for over a decade. I, I use it. Yeah, you know, I hate using it, but I use it. Um, but I've used Linux in the past for other things. I think it's great. I definitely use a lot of free software. I use OBS, which is what I'm using right now yeah. uh, to, to talk to you. OBS is like an amazing uh, example of free software um, that's open source and community developed, and it works really, really wonderfully. Um, I use a lot of free I, – I'm a big advocate for free and open source software. I'm a big advocate of Mastodon and PeerTube, mm. and I do think we should be doing more, and I should be doing more to try to get people to – adopt those platforms. I have a Mastodon account that I've actually been neglecting for about two or three years now, but I keep intending yeah. to get back on it. Um, but it, that's like the future, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's difficult because obviously we're, we're taking these like uh, anarchist adjacent, you know, free software and like community driven and uh, like vertically, uh, you know, like vertical platforms. And we're, you know, the way to get everyone to use them is to compete on the capitalist free market, right? Right. So it's right. like we're, um, uh, it's um, difficult to actually, you know, convert. I mean, I don't, I don't even know. Is the goal is to like use the market to convert everyone to free software? I mean, well, yeah, there's so there's there's so many factors with that. And I've 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 hit my head against them for years now. But like, so first of all, there's ma there's massive resistance for anyone to change software platforms. That's like a big yeah. that's a central uh, principle of like IT. I actually I've learned from talking to like IT professionals is that if you install new software, like the biggest battle is just getting people to actually use it, and people yeah. always complain about it at first, you know, until they start to realize why you're moving switching platforms or whatever. And it's like a big deal. So trying to get people to move over from Facebook or Twitter to Mastodon, for instance, is a huge problem. It's very difficult. People will already have had their followers that they've spent years, you know, cultivating this following and finding all these friends online and stuff like that. And then you come over to a new platform and it's like you're the new kid at school, you know. Yeah. Um, the thing about Mastodon is that there are no... Uh, there are no algorithms that try to get you hooked and addicted. They don't start, you know, like, you know, when you um, first make an account on Twitter or Facebook, they ask to comb through all your contacts on your phone and your email and stuff like that yeah. to try to, 
you know, push people into it and get you put, connected with all your friends. Mastodon doesn't do that. They protect your data. They don't have an algorithm that's trying to, you know, keep you hooked. And so at first it's like it feels like something's missing because mm-hmm. they're not immediately trying to get you addicted and like form this unhealthy relationship with your brain. They're not yeah. Skinner boxing you. So you actually don't check in it as often, especially at first. Um, and I'll, you know, it, it just becomes like, you know, you get kind of lured back to Twitter because it's like, oh, if I put something on Twitter, I'll get a lot more likes. I'll get a lot more endorphin rush. It'll be mm-hmm. a lot more, you know, intergaging and, um, yeah. and I mean, Mastodon that, by design is not weakness, doing that. That's right, of Mastodon is they don't use any psychological dirty tricks to get you addicted. It, yeah, it's a double-edged, it's a double-edged sword. It's what we want. It's really yeah. the selling feature of the software, but it's also like what's preventing us from using it. Yeah. So it's kind of a interesting little example of like how we are our own worst enemies sometimes. I think. Yeah. One example of me just kind of being angry at capitalism, um, which you can probably relate to, is uh, like I don't know. I don't know when, it, but like a couple of years ago, right? If you wanted to watch something legally, if you wanted to like stream a TV show or a movie or something, you went to Netflix. Oh, now, yeah. I know where you're going. you have to Google what the show is and find out, yeah. okay, is this on Netflix or on Amazon Prime or on Hulu or on Disney Plus or on HBO? Uh, and, and you have to be subscribed to like six different websites paying yeah. like $10 a month to each of them if you want to be able to watch whatever you want. Um, but, you know, the liberals will say, well, you know, competition is good for the consumer you know the more competition the better (laughs) in this situation it's clearly not you know it's like and 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 by the way it's like uh it's a perfect example by the way of why classical economics are so it, it it's completely fabricated you know nonsense because there is an unlimited infinite supply of i mean except for i guess the 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 one bottleneck, I guess, is like bandwidth, you know, and hard drive space. But like for mm-hmm. practical purposes, like there, you could download an infinite number of videos. Yeah. You know what I mean? So there's no supply and demand curve. They're going to charge you as much as they feel like they can get away with charging you. Yeah. So the whole thing about supply and demand totally breaks down when you talk about digital products. It's like on Steam. If I buy a video game, um, I can look at the I can look at the Vietnam Steam store. I guess anybody can do this if you have a VPN. I can look at the Steam store on Vietnam. And see that the prices are half price on average to buy a video game here versus buying them in the USA. Oh, yeah. So, like, so, and, and again, it's just like they're going to charge whatever they think they can get away with charging you, you know, and, um, and you can fleece actually, you for as much um, as they can get. If you use a VPN, you can actually buy video games for cheap and yeah. just have them. Yeah, the problem is that in Vietnam specifically, I have to get – it's on my to-do list. I have to get an actual Vietnam credit card to use Steam mm-hmm. in Vietnam. Maybe there's other countries where they don't have that restriction. But Do you not like, use PayPal? No, they only let you use – I think because they don't want people to use VPNs and get the games cheaper, I guess. Oh, yeah. That's that my guess. But they, they'll only let you buy it with a specifically Vietnam-registered credit card. So. Hmm. Um, but I'll get one eventually, and I will start paying half price for games. Not that I buy a lot of games, but – yeah. Um, I've been gaming more lately, last f- few months than for the last few years. I've been trying to take more mental health breaks. <laughs> yeah, that's probably good. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Do do should we stay on the topic of like software and stuff? 
That was oh, I mean, it's I'm I'm here for whatever. I don't know. I'm just a uh, stream of conscious things. <laughs> yeah. so if you want to get us back on track, that's fine with me. <laughs> um, I think one of the main things, uh, I don't, it's not like I don't want to turn this stream into like a debate stream, obviously. Uh, yeah. But I do want to point out, it. you know, mm-hmm. the main reason I'm not an anarchist um, is like it's a bit contradictory because on the one hand I can appreciate um decentralization and the ideals mm-hmm. of community self-management and self-reliance of these things mm-hmm. uh, and on the other hand um in a very practical sense as someone who lives in sweden which has uh, since the 1980s tried to decentralize things like education uh healthcare, and, and different parts of our welfare system and mm-hmm. seen kind of what a disaster it's been for the actual material needs of human beings uh, and, and the actual inequality that it's caused between different communities. Um, I, I, it's like I, I would love it if I could get on board with decentralization. But f- uh, from my own experiences living in a decentralized uh, society, I can't help but just want centralization. Right. Well, I guess my first question would be like, I, I'm a, or I, my first assumption would be that um, this de- this decentralization was within a capitalist economy and with like a liberalish, sock demish kind of. I'm, I'm I don't know a lot about Sweden's government, but I'm guessing it must be kind of liberalish and also capitalist. Um, is that well? The original idea was to increase equality and to limit state interference to uh, I mean the the original ideals were progressive right it was a uh, it was actually um, it was inspired by the 1968 uh, socialist protests in in France the may may 68 um, and those protests spread to Sweden and it was actually mostly socialists and communists who were protesting and saying we need to decentralize, we need to let municipalities and communities, uh, you know, take you know, ru- uh, decide for themselves how to spend their own money, uh, how to spend their own tax income, how to run their own schools, run their own uh, healthcare facilities, and the idea was that well, if we do this, uh, because the, the biggest criticism against centralization was it causes inequality. Um, that the centralized, specifically the education system, that's what I know the most about, is the centralized education system in Sweden, it causes inequality. Or mm-hmm. there is inequality, and it has to be because of centralization, and it can't be because of anything else. Um, and so then, uh, with the pressure of these protests through the years, eventually, every political party in parliament, including the Communist Party, um, decided that, yeah, we should decentralize. Um, and then we started to decentralize. We took power from the central government and we gave it to local municipalities. And we said, you take, you, you gather up your own tax income, you decide where to spend it, you decide how to run your own schools. And the idea was, well, if each community can rule over themselves without interference from the centralized state government and, and without the, um, 
inefficient state bureaucracy, um, then everything will be a lot more equal. But the issue that we've seen, and obviously it is within a capitalistic society, right? It's, we've been a social democratic society since 1921, uh, uninterrupted. Um, but what we've seen is the quality of our education has dropped drastically. Uh, the mm -hmm. spending on education has dropped uh, ever since we allowed municipalities to decide for themselves if they want to spend money on education, which apparently a lot of them don't want to do. Um, and we've seen a huge increase in racial segregation because uh, poor communities usually are immigrant communities and they don't have money. And so the tax income is lower and so the schools are worse off. So there's no, well, there's very very weak central coordination between these communities and actually taking resources from one community which has more and giving it to the communities which have less. And yeah. that's kind of where I want to see more state interference because these municipalities are not doing like mutual aid. They're not like cooperating with each other. They're like, right. I have mine, you guys you know, deal with your own shit. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's what I would probably, I mean, for one thing I would say within centralization, there's a lot of drastic difference and variation you can have ideologically mm -hmm. behind the centralization. That, I mean, cause you could say that like Nazi Germany was very centralized, <laughs> you know, like they yeah. had the, the party that ruled over everything. It was very hierarchical. Um, but obviously I don't think that you want a system like that, even though it's centralized. And then like, you know, there are, are more like Vietnam is fairly centralized um, and it works pretty well. A lot of the stuff they do here that's centralized works really well. Like, I think that it's great that um, the national resources of the entire, you know, I, I like that they, that they were able to take these, um, this team of doctors basically uh, uh, made, set the policy and set the, the course for the COVID response. Um, mm -hmm. It was led by a kind of a central team of doctors and they kind of made, uh, and I think with a with a pandemic situation, that makes sense, right? Because you have to be worrying about all the borders of the country. You have to worry about how the outbreaks are spreading from city to city. And in that sense, you know, having a larger, more centralized framework, you know, might make sense for that situation. Um, and then on the other hand, like within decentralization, there are a lot of different ways. That, I mean, because I could say like, uh, you know, like a war-torn country like Syria, you know, with like warlords is essentially is mm -hmm. decentralized. And obviously I don't advocate for that kind of system, you know? Um, so that like, I think though. that the, <laughs> I think that the ideological underpinnings of a system, whether it's centralized or decentralized is going to obviously influence the outcomes a lot. Um, you know, so like if you just have decentralization alone, but you still keep capitalism and you still keep, uh, and, 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 the, and the people within the society are acculturated to capitalistic, uh, to a capitalistic mindset and ideology, um, it's going to fail. Like, you can't have anarchism without people that are anarchists uh, mm. kind of, you know, inhabiting that society. Just like one of the reasons I think Vietnam's, like, Vietnam's system would not work if you just, if we just, if, like, Donald Trump waved a hand and said, we're going to do exactly what Vietnam is doing, um and just like totally copied and pasted every single idea, like not that that would ever happen. But mm -hmm. if he did, um, I don't think that it would have really worked in America for a lot of reasons, because first of all, 
the culture, the acculturation is very important. This is something Ho Chi Minh talked about a lot, actually. Um, Ho Chi Minh talked about how the, one of the first priorities of any socialist society is to create socialist people with socialist values. And mm-hmm. that is one of the big projects of Vietnam right now. This is something help, that Luna really helped me to understand. Like, uh, you have to teach people why socialism is important and you have to get them to kind of like buy into the ideas of socialism. I think it was easy to do here in Vietnam because for like a thousand years, they've had a very collectivist society and they've been very like, which I think most societies were more collectivist, you know, up until, yeah. uh, you know, a few hundred years ago. But I, but even like a few a few years ago, I mean, you know, we're, we're tending towards more individualization everywhere. So I don't think Vietnam is like this special place, but they just happen to be more agrarian and more connected to each other mm-hmm. when they had their revolution and they have, you know, had the socialist um, framework for about 70 years now. So, um, yeah. so and like, I mean, my point is they that have, um, it, oh, they have like a united culture, yeah. you know, uh, yeah. and they, they're united in the struggle for national liberation against France. There's no Vietnamese person who's like pissed off and whining because they have to wear a mask. I mean, like, I've never seen it. I've never heard of it. It's just not because, like, they immediately, and it's not just the mask thing, but, like, everything. Like, the the remarkable thing to me about Vietnam, and I say this as somebody who lived through both the lockdowns now, mm. um, in the, Da Nang, which is kind of the center of the, of the really, of the both outbreaks, you know, the worst hit city. Um, the people here, and, and by the way, Da Nang is, like, more the south. Da Nang was occupied by the USA during the war. There's a lot more anti-communism, you know, in the South and in the North. But even even so, um, the people were very happy to kind of like work together. There were there was like mass volunteering. Nobody was like resisting these programs in the way that you saw in the USA. So that's why I'm saying like yeah. the acculturation I think is very important. Um, and I think that's something that that Ho Chi Minh got spot on. And I'm uh, you know and I think that it you know the proofs in the pudding here. Like if you did try to do all of these kind of um, Drastic measures, which they were drastic. They totally shut down the whole economy. I mean, mm. they shut everything down. The only places that were open were grocery stores and, like, little hardware stores. Everything else was shut down for, like, over a month. And the economy ground to a halt. A lot of places went out of business. You know, like, it, it was drastic, okay? Uh, the tourism yeah. industry is fucked. <laughs> but the people kind of grinned and bared through it. Um, in a way that I don't know that Americans would have quite done with the, with the current mindset that they have. Now, that's to say, I mean, I don't know what the Swedish mindset is. I'm sure they're a lot more socialistic and socially oriented than, like, Americans, for example. But mm. I don't know that they have the kind of anarchistic values that would be required to make a decentralized anarchistic system work, which is why I always say the most important – like, the, the big disadvantage and the big advantage of anarchism is that it's slower. It requires a hell of a lot of education you know, like people can't self-govern unless they have some basic, unless we all share some basic principles of anarchism. So it's not a fast system the way Marxist-Leninism is, where you can have a vanguard party come in and, you know, like push their agenda forward to like over, for lack of a better term, the masses, you know, the proletariat mm-hmm. or whatever. Um, anarchism by, by by all rights would have to be a slower system to implement because you can't put a gun to someone's head and say, you're an anarchist now. <laughs> you know, that's like, an, that's an oxymoron. So I would guess that a lot of the problems you're well, having that's with what, decentralization. That's what Nestor Macno did. <laughs> yeah, right. And we'll look what happened to Nestor Macno. I mean, like, you know, I mean, I, I, um, I'm not an expert on Nestor Macno, but, um, you know, I do think that the biggest problems anarchists have ever had are um, 
you know, like other, uh, I don't want, I don't want, that, this is where it gets into like, I, I, I don't know enough about the history, but from what I understand, you know, the Spanish civil war, there was a lot of, uh, authoritarian leftists that like undermined mm-hmm. the project. And, and I believe that Magna was also undermined by, you know, Russia. Yeah. Um, and that, you know, so that, but anyway, the, the, the point of the matter is, um, I do believe that if an anarchist society were allowed to, and this is the, another criticism that, you know, Marxist Leninists have of anarchism all the time is that we can't defend ourselves. Mm. Um, and I don't think that's true. I think that Magno's ar- army was very well d- designed. It just so happened that, you know, Russia was much larger, much more powerful, you know, and yeah. the Spanish anarchists, uh, maybe they were too trusting, maybe, but they had a, they had effectively organized and, you know, well-run militaries. They just weren't sizable enough and they weren't, and they, and they made some decisions here and there that made them lose. But I don't think that that is like an inherent weakness. I mean, certainly the Zapatistas don't consider themselves anarchists. I always have to preface that. They don't consider themselves anarchists. But me as an anarchist, when I look at the Zapatistas and the way that their military is designed, it mm. lines up with my values. Um, I would call it anarchistic at least. Yeah. Um, and they've been holding their own for a very long time. Uh, Rojava, uh, again, not a fully anarchistic society, but... A lot of their values line up with mine in terms of how they're organizing and structuring that sort of thing. So anyway, mm. um, that's a totally different, I guess that's a sidetrack kind of thing, but I thought I would address it since a, a lot of people, that's one of the first things they bring up. Um, but I do mm. think that it's possible for anarchists to field a military and self-defense forces, you know, just as effectively as anybody else. We're not naive enough to think that like, we don't need to have, you know, self-defense forces and that sort of thing. Um, yeah. uh, so anyway, um, but yeah, I, so I do. I oh, do ahead. know some of the history of the free territory in, in Ukraine, and, and for the most, you probably part, know more than I do. Yeah, but I mean, I agree with you that you know the Bolsheviks were the aggressors. Um, yeah, I mean, their entire thing was, well, we need to. Um, uh, well, they 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 were supporting the Bolshevik Revolution in in Ukraine, right? Mm-hmm. And so on the the. They didn't really have like left unity on their mind. They just kind of saw, okay, there are communists in Ukraine that are rising up. We need to help them. They're fighting against the Red Army or the Black Army, sorry. And so we're just going to unite all of Ukraine. Like we're just going to put down this anarchist revolt. Um, But within the Free Territory and within the Black Army, there were some problems. Um, They weren't entirely i would say martyrs for the revolution um the they started out with having a very anarchistic organization of the military uh, electing the, the soldiers electing their own officers and being able to recall their officers and uh, that kind of thing and and it was maybe a little bit idealistic because they found out fairly quickly that it doesn't really um you know, when when they're attacked by a much stronger enemy, as the Bol- as the Bolsheviks and the Red Army were, uh, you can't really hold referendums on getting rid of your best officers all the time. You kind of need your best officers to be, you know, taking care of your army, and to make yeah. sure that you can actually win this war. Um, and you know, maybe we can have democracy in the military afterwards, right? As soon as we've defended our territory, uh, and so they did away with the democracy. And then they just had a normal standard hierarchical army. Um, and they kind of had to come to terms with the fact that 
Um, they don't really have any borders. Anyone can just kind of walk in. And so they have agitators and saboteurs and things within yeah, their territory. I, I'm familiar with that. And I think that was premature. You know, that was a premature. There were there were there were definitely tactical and strategic uh, mistakes that were made, you know, yeah. idealistically, I guess. Um, I, I guess my carte blanche thing would be that, like, I do like let me let me just say, like, uh, I, I'm not one to say that, like, we should just immediately have uh full anarchism or that we could immediately have full anarchism. It's a process. It takes mm -hmm. time. If, like, so like, I, I'm not as familiar with that, but I could say like today, if I'm, if I'm living today um, and I'm involved, let's say I live in some country where socialism and anarchism are completely illegal. You know, like, let's say I live yeah. somewhere very draconian, like, I don't know, like uh, a, a monarchy, America. you know, like a really hierarchical fascistic kind of uh, society where, you know, if I get caught being a communist or, or advocating for communism or anarchism, I will get put to death, right? In that situation, yeah. what am I going to do? I'm going to set up a little cell of people, you know, that I really trust. And I'm going to you, – you can't have, like, free transparency and free-flowing information. You're going to have to set up some kind of a cell where there's, like, a very clear rules about what you can and can't do, who is and who isn't allowed to come in. You know, you're going to have to have uh, probably some sort of a hierarchy where somebody, you know, where if you get an order, you know, you have to follow it, like, because it's a life and death situation and it's very immediate, um, you know, and I think most anarchists realize that, you know, and, it, and, I, and I see that in a lot of anarchist organizations where, you know, within the, within these, like, basically the way that we structure things during the revolution um, isn't always going to be as ideal as we would like it to be in a post-revolutionary society you know there's not mm. always going to be the as much democracy you, you have to it's a balancing act it always is mm. and it always will be you know like like rudolf rocker i think the most important thing to understand about the anarchist mindset is a quote from Ru rudolf rocker who said i'm not an anarchist because anarchism is the end goal but because there is no end goal and so the idea is there will always be more hierarchies that we discover that need to be dismantled there will always be better systems i think that system design like communication and democracy system design is like probably the most important science for an anarchist to study and, and to try to develop, you know, because systems of democracy can be shitty and can be worse than a hierarchy if they're not well designed. Like look at the USA's democracy system. It's like I would almost rather have like a king than have this weird electoral college system. I mean, I wouldn't really rather have a king, but it's like it's kind of a toss up, which is worse because the electoral college system and the way that lobbying works and the way that corruption is essentially legalized in the USA, that form of democracy is not democratic at all. It's a horrible system. And look mm. where it's leading us. Um, so like, just if you, you, you can't just say like democracy isn't like an on off switch, you know, there are good, there are well-designed systems of democracy and there are shitty designed systems of democracy. There are situations where democracy is more appropriate. And then there are systems, there are situations where it's kind of an emergency, like, you know, I, I always use the example of a, a ship, uh, you know, if you're out in the ocean from day to day, most of the time it's fine to have like democracy and vote on things. But if there's a storm, you know, and it's like a big, bad storm, you're going to want to lean on the people who have the most experience and probably mm -hmm. have some kind of hierarchy pre-established in place. Like you follow because, you know, on a ship, you all have to work at the same time. You have to be coordinated. And in that situation, having some kind of uh, rigid system in place is probably the best way to go forward with that. You know, yeah, versus like a coffee shop. on the helmsman. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And especially if you think of like a, <laughs> but, 
I don't. I didn't get that. Do you know what that's from? <laughs> no. Oh, it's uh, it's an old uh, Maoist uh, cultural revolution thing about how the Communist okay. Party is led by Mao. I need to study more Mao. I I, I do. I have taken a lot of lessons from Mao. You know. Um, mm. But yeah, yeah I mean, like, the... I could, maybe you could fill me in a bit about why there's such an overlap between Maoists and anarchists. Because they there seemed to be a lot of like Mao was an anarchist for a while, so I think he kept I think he took a lot of those ideas from anarchism and brought them in. I, I you know it feels that way to me. Mm. Like Massaline to me seems completely anarchistic. You know the whole idea yeah. of taking the the cues for what your priorities are from the people, and then having this feedback loop between like the party and the people. You know and and yeah. letting the people kind of push things forward. That feels like it comes from an anarchistic place you know um and it also makes sense again like like within uh many frameworks that's you know yeah so again that might be a good way to uh there's always gonna be compromise i guess is the real point and i don't think that any anarchist is going to be well for, there are probably are some anarchists there are anarchists don't get me wrong in fact a lot of anarchists call me a tanky yeah uh, because they think they think that i'm too uh into like these ideas from Marx and Engels and even Lenin and Ho Chi Minh and Mao and they think that I'm too there are like these kind of I don't know I know I clash with them a lot these kind of I think of them they think of me as a tanky I think of them as like edge lords who mm -hmm. haven't had a lot of practical experience working with with people and organizing people because there are people who are like we shouldn't have any kind of structure and we should just you know everybody do their own thing and it's like you know it's like very like chaos worshiping it, mm. They just, they, it, it's kind of obnoxious to me. I'm sure that they would articulate their position better than I just did, but that's the way it feels to me when I have these conversations with them. And mm. like, and, and we butt heads and then, and they call me a tanky. Um, but like, you know, I, I, I think that the system design is very important. And I, and I believe that the, a real problem, a real threat to any movement is what Joe Friedman calls the tyranny of structurelessness. And that's the idea that if you have no structure whatsoever, then what's going to happen is the people with the strong personalities are going to come in. And Joe Friedman was a feminist, so she was talking about feminist spaces. And, mm -hmm. you know, specifically she was talking about, like, if men coming into a, a revolutionary space, you know, they're, they're, they're very likely to kind of, like, take up more room, especially white men. You know, we've all talked about mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. Um, so you have to have a, a well-designed communication and democratic system to avoid the tyranny of structurelessness so that you don't just have a few people with big personalities who come in. And, and like Joe Friedman was talking about how, you know, when she was working in the 60s and 70s, there would be these situations where somebody would be like leading everything kind of draconian in this draconian way. But mm -hmm. then whenever you try to call them out on it, they'd be like, no, there are no leaders. We have, we, this is a leadership, leaderless movement, <laughs> you know, and it was like bullshit. And, but, but these people were able to get away with it because they had this whole, um, you know, they had the they had this like concept of being a leaderless movement, but there wasn't any structure, and that led to a form of tyranny. So, yeah. um, so what anyway, is, what is a good uh, way to organize uh, kind of a, an anarchist organization or an anarchist space? You know, in a way that's kind of, I, I guess it doesn't have to be leaderless, but in a way that's at least anarchist adjacent. Like, how do you do that effectively? I can tell you, like, so first of all, I mean, the the the, the mealy mouth answer is it's really going to depend on every variable you know yeah. like and you have to kind of craft it carefully from the beginning like the the beginnings because i've started a shitload of projects 
anarchistically in the last three or four years. And I've been involved with a mm-hmm. lot of groups and a lot of people trying to do a lot of things. The ones that succeed, I think the first stage is the most important stage. And if they do a good job setting up the framework and if they grow slowly at first, I think at first you can't have too many people involved uh, right off the bat. If you Maybe somebody else is good at doing that. I'm not. I don't know how to do that. To me, it's like you start with a small core of people and you get a vision and you create a platform. And um, I don't – okay, so like first thing I want to say is I'm, I, I have a version of platformism that I follow that was taught to me by other anarchists through praxis. So when I talk about platformism – my background and my understanding of platformism doesn't actually come from reading theory. It actually comes from praxis and from talking to people who actually are very good organizers. So I know that when I describe what I call platformism, it's based loosely on Macno's idea of platformism, mm-hmm. but it's different. It diverges and they have different yeah. names. And, you know, Macno, so, so I don't, I, I always get people saying that, like, oh, Macno didn't mean that when he said platformism, but there is this mm-hmm. like living. Uh, document version of platformism that is very popular in anarchist circles right now, like in the streets, like in practice. Mm. So that's what I'm talking about. So anyway, the whole idea of platformism, the way I conceive of it is you have a platform, you have a set of principles and a set of goals that everyone agrees to. I think that's very important. And you start with like four, five, six people. It's got to be kind of a small group at first, at least. And you build this platform. And then when you get into the recruiting stage, the platform is the, is key to everything. Anybody that comes in and becomes a member of that group uh, agrees beforehand that they agree to that platform. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And and if they agree to it, and and then they can come in, and we can all work together. And then if somebody, if we get to a point where like somebody says, okay, this isn't working, then either we democratically decide to change the platform together, or if we can't reach some kind of consensus, then people are free to leave and start their own organization. And what they could do is. You know, because we don't believe in intellectual property, they could take the same platform that we developed and all the organization structures and tools that we developed, and they could just kind of copy that, paste it, and then make whatever changes they want. And then they have their own parallel organization. And then ideally, yeah. we could still even work together. And I have seen it's that like happen, a, actually. It's like a forking a project on GitHub. It's exactly like that. <laughs> exactly. And and yeah. to be honest, I mean, there's a lot of – I think there's a lot of anarchistic ideas you can pull from the tech bro Silicon yeah. Valley world, like agile is very anarchistic and it works really, really well. For, like I, that's my background. You know, I've, I've worked in web development, I've worked in media production and I've worked in agile workflows. And I think that sort of give, gave me a, a good lens into what works and what doesn't. Mm-hmm. So, um, so anyway, the point is, yeah, I think platformism is a great way to solve a lot of problems because it's like, it cuts through a lot of clutter. And it's like, you could just say like, look, the platform says this, if yeah. you agree with the platform, Stay with us. Keep working with us. If you don't, you know, you're very welcome to go start your own organization. We'll even help you do it. Like, that's the healthiest way to do that, I guess. And so that, mm. to me, it, it solves a lot of the problems of what you're talking about in Sweden where, you know, because here's the thing. My ideal society that I would want to live in, my ideal world, right? Mm-hmm. Like, if I could just build a world that I could live in, it would not have one formula, one magic bullet system of organizing society because yeah. I don't think humans are like that. I think we have different proclivities. We have different cultures. We have different ways of looking mm-hmm. at the world. And so I want to live in a world where, like, maybe my city is, like, very anarcho-communistic. It has a, a – because, you know, I'm actually more centrally oriented. And I like the idea of having, like, a city or a state uh, – not – well, state's the wrong word, obviously. But, a, a, a <laughs> you know, a region. Regional. Let's put it that way. A region. Yeah. Um, 
I was thinking state like an American, you know, like South Carolina. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Not like, but anyway, um, so uh, uh, anyway, uh, you have a region and I, and I like the idea of having like, um, you know, you have like locally organized communities, but then you have like larger frameworks for like things like garbage disposal or education or whatever, um, mm-hmm. you know, because like one thing Kropotkin talked about a lot is that you would have basically like an infinite variety of large and small organizations. Some of them would be like just on your city block. Some of them might just be in your building. Some of them might be global, you know, but you have mm-hmm. all these different organizations and, and frameworks and they're kind of connected together through um, contracts and through free association. So, you know, you should be able to leave and, and join freely. Um, but yeah, and then you might have like like Vietnam. It feels to me living here like Vietnamese people kind of like the centrally organized structure. It it works yeah. for them. Um, and I'm not going to come in as a white dude from the USA and tell them <laughs> they got to change their society for me. If they want to organize their society that way, very centralized, very Marxist Leninist kind of a situation, I think that's fine. And I think that they could live side by side with a neighboring country that's more anarchistic and we could still have mutual aid between each other. It's basically just a bigger blown up version of platformism. Yeah. So maybe that kind of cuts through some of the clutter here. And I, and, and so like with Sweden, if the, if the majority of Swedish people decide that they want to have a centrally organized education system, it, it doesn't offend me. You know, I don't mm. think that's a problem. I, I, I feel like it's there's plenty of different ways to organize society. I just the problem I would have is if one small group of people has some kind of authoritarian control over most people, mm. you know, um, that's what as an anarchist that that is the enemy to me. That's the kind of hierarchy that I am opposed to is when it is coercion, dominance and having a minority having control over a majority of people. Um, I guess that's where the 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 real uh that's the most important thing about anarchism to me, I guess. That's the part of the anarchist lens that's most important to me is being aware of coercion and dominance hierarchies and those sorts of things and trying to eradicate them as much as we practically can given the material conditions. 